It says in verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus, and it goes on to talk about him giving a decree. The term Caesar is a Roman title from the Latin meaning severed. Very appropriate when one considers the fact that under Augustus, the Roman Republic was severed. (laughs) It was replaced by him as a magisterial emperor. Very imperial monarchy. People lost their say, and they got a military king instead. The title Augustus means the exalted one. So you kind of see where this is going here. The exalted one, although it was the Roman Senate that conferred this title on Caesar Augustus in 27 B.C., the year that he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, who were lovers, to be sure, but also enemies of Rome. So he went down there and whipped them silly and took over Egypt. His great uncle was Julius Caesar, who you know from history was assassinated by traitors, Brutus being one. And Augustus came to power in 31 B.C., and he remained in power until 14 A.D., and his reign overlapped with that of King Herod. His, Herod's reign was 27 B.C. to about 4 B.C., so 23 years of overlap there. When Herod's in, in authority in Palestine, Augustus in authority over the entire uh, Roman Empire. But here's the point to remember about that. Herod ruled, Herod ruled by permission of Augustus. Rome has gobbled up Judea and Palestine at this time in history. And Augustus was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, and he used his military might to establish the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Oh, yeah, yeah. He brought peace to the empire by whipping everybody else. That's how, that's how he did it. And uh, there were these skirmishes and some battles and so forth. He did have one year of uh, civil uh, war, uh, but after that, things really calmed down. You see, Augustus was primarily a military leader, and he used his military know-how to expand the empire. How did he do that? He annexed Egypt, Dalmatia, Pannonia, some of these names you won't remember, Norcom, Retela. He expanded his possessions into Africa. He expanded into Germania, the German uh, states. He, he completed the conquest of Hispania, Spain. So boom, boom, boom. You know, he's moving uh, east and he's moving south and he's just expanding the empire tremendously. He reformed the Roman system of taxation and he developed networks of roads, with an official courier system. He established a standing army and established what was known as the Praetorian Guard. We know about that, don't we? That's in Jesus' day. The Praetorian Guard in uh, Palestine to keep the peace, you know, uh, with the governor there. He created official police and firefighting services for the city of Rome. He rebuilt much of that city during his reign. He died in 14 A.D. at the age of 75. So that was his his career. He may have died of natural courses, but uh, the rumors are that his wife, Olivia, poisoned him because she wanted her son to be the heir apparent and Augustus chose somebody else. Well, not really. He chose his stepson, his adopted son, and Tiberius became Uh, the new Caesar. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who links his narrative to secular history. The only one. And this is very helpful to us because it allows biblical scholars to kind of pinpoint the time and the date of the biblical history. As part of his reforms, Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, verse 1. Well, what do we know about this census? Verse 2 reads, better in the Greek uh, text, this, the first census, took place 
Well, Quirinius was governor of Syria. So see here, I have a uh, historical link to somebody named Quirinius. And it helps us. So, by the way, Luke, the author, is looking back. He's looking back to the time when an earlier census was taken. It's still in effect. We have found documents that indicate that a Roman census was taken in conquered territories about every 14 years. Now, the United States takes a census, doesn't it? Every, about every 10 years, we take a census. So this, this is not that unusual. To complete the information, everyone had to go to his or her own hometown, verse 2, to register. Register for the census. The reference here to Quirinius by Luke refers to the man whom Augustus appointed to replace Herod Archelaus. Now, Herod Archelaus was one of the sons of Herod the Great, but he was pretty brutal, and he rebelled against Caesar, and so he's banished. So we're going to come up against Herod Archelaus when Jesus comes back from Egypt you know, he goes down there, he escapes Herod the Great, who's going to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Well, he lives there for a while in Egypt, and when he comes back, it's Herod Achilles that's in authority. But he is replaced by Quirinius. If you have a King James Bible, it is transliterated, not translated, transliterated Cyrenius. Cyrenius. Same guy. He had been a Roman senator. And all along uh, with him, another man was, uh, was appointed, and these two men were assigned to set up a taxation program for Syria and Judea combined. Josephus, Wikipedia writes, Josephus links the census to an uprising led by Judas of Galilee. Okay, so you got a rebel here. The most likely cause was the association between census and taxation. If anything the Jews didn't like, it's being taxed by Rome. Although there may have been religious objections stemming from a biblical account of Satan inciting King David to take a census, and you'll find that in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. So the Jews just were anti-census. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Although Josephus implies the uprising had little immediate success, he regarded their, these actions of this Judas, who was the rebel, as the beginning of what was called the zealous movement among the Jews that encouraged, now get this, encouraged the Jews to have armed resistance against the Roman Empire. And this is the baby steps leading up to the first Jewish-Roman wars that we find in history. So you can imagine a little Palestine here going up against Rome, against the emperor of Rome. And it all started over this business of taxation. Are we going to be paying them taxes for our own land that we own? And they rebelled on religious grounds. From regular census that have been carried out in Egypt, we learn that the head of each household Usually the eldest male had to provide details about his property, who lived on it, including his family members, his employees, his lodgers, his slaves. And he had to give the name, age, and relationship to the head of the household. All of that had to be provided in the census. Our census in America is supposed to count heads, right? Have you noticed that in some of the later census they're counting bedrooms and bathrooms and a few other things that shouldn't be in a census, but that's what government does. It intrudes, it sneaks in, it says, well, we got, you know, we're here with our questions. And um, <clears throat> I have refused to, <laughs> I've been a rebel sometimes. I have refused to answer some of those questions in the past because I know what the original census is all about. It's about counting heads, people, and not to see where you are economically and how many bathrooms you have in the house or how many... Uh, bedrooms, and so forth. Well, anyway, as a result of this decree, verse 3 and 4, everyone went to his own hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea 
to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Luke 2, verses 3 through 5. The fact that both Mary and Joseph where residents of Nazareth didn't count. They had to travel to their hometown to be registered. Both of them were of the line of David. 1 Samuel 20, verse 6, refers to Bethlehem as David's hometown. Now, that's kind of different from our registrations. If we register to vote, for example, if you live in Lapeer County, but you were born in Genesee County. You do not go to Genesee County to register to vote. You register where you live presently, which would be Lapeer County. Just the opposite in the Roman census. You went back to your homeland to register regardless of where you now lived. Think of the task of moving this is a, if this is a Roman-wide census, think of the task of moving the entire population for this census. Wow. You thought you had trouble shopping on the roadways before Christmas and after. The census taker did not show up at your door with a clipboard full of questions. No, you showed up at his door, or at least the city, which you were born, and there you would give your information. Now notice secondly in your outline that this for Mary and Joseph would be a long, arduous journey. Verse 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And if you know anything about a map, and if I had a map, I'd show it to you, you would know that Nazareth is up by the Sea of Galilee, way up in here. Judea is down here by the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's down here, and Bethlehem's down here. So why, if Nazareth is north of Judea and Bethlehem, does it say that they went up to Jerusalem? It's because Jerusalem's built on a hill and everything is up to Jerusalem, even if you're going to travel south. And that's the way it's always described in the New Testament. It's looking at the geography of the city. And it is really on a high hill, uh, and that's why they speak in that particular way. Now, the journey from Nazareth in the northern part of Palestine to Bethlehem was about 90 miles, and it consisted of a three-day journey for the able-bodied. No bus, no train, no automobile, no planes, just sandal leather. And for the more affluent, a beast of burden, uh, a donkey, a camel, something like that. While most of the artist's concepts of this journey portray Mary sitting on a donkey being led by Joseph on the roadway, I can find nothing in the gospel accounts to substantiate that. There is a prophecy in the book of Zechariah that reads this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9. But this prophecy applies to Jesus in later life upon his entrance into Jerusalem just days before his trial and execution. We call that Palm Sunday. Let me read it for you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went away and did as Jesus had instructed them. Matthew 21, verse 6 verses. So, you can't use that prophecy to say that Joseph was leading Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. As for the nativity, Joseph may have had a donkey for the journey to Bethlehem or not. I think not. Why not? Because he was poor. That's why not. How do we know he was poor? Verse 24 is going to be our next study. It tells us of the purification offering that Joseph and Mary presented for Jesus' birth. What is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or young pigeons. After a woman gave birth to a child, they would have a purification offering for her. But if you look at the original law in Leviticus 12, it reads, When the days of her purification are over, she is to bring a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. Luke 12, verse, or Leviticus 12, verse 8. And it adds this thought. If she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two pigeons, one for the burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And in this way the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So, what do we have in our text? Joseph and Mary could only afford pigeons or doves, as the case may be, for an offering. They certainly didn't have the price of a donkey. So They're poor. They are poor. So we need to keep in mind here. Still, having said that, they had to travel. The decree of Augustus did not contain a hardship clause in the contract for pregnant women or for that matter anyone who might be sick or impaired. No, you get to your hometown city and you get registered. So Joseph and Mary hit the road on foot. If a passerby offered them a seat in his ox cart, I'm sure they would have pounced upon that. But there's nothing in the word of God that suggests such a thing. So we have to assume that they walked. Incidentally, recently, our daughter-in-law gave birth to a baby girl, new addition to our home. Her entire pregnancy was very difficult, especially in the last months. Walking anywhere was difficult in the ninth month, especially up and down stairs. I called her endearingly Waddles. Now, I cannot conceive of her walking from Lapeer to Alma, Michigan, which is 92 miles from Lapeer. And that's on paved roadways or sidewalks if they would be supplied. It would have been near impossible to do without endangering herself or her baby. In the case of Mary, I can only conclude that God enabled her in a special way to carry out this arduous journey without any medical emergency. Childbirth carries its own set of unique problems and complications, but God is gracious to his people. And if you read Timothy, he tells us about that, that God will see to it that Christian women come through childbirth. Blessed of God. Blessed of God. Arduous journey or not, they hit the road and went to Bethlehem. Now, if that was not bad enough, when they get to Bethlehem, there's no room in any of the inns for them. The journey was tough enough, but consider as well that when they arrived, Bethlehem, all of its places of lodging, were full up. Now normally people would just stay with relatives, you know. That's what we do. But Joseph and Mary's kin were in Galilee. Their history is in Bethlehem. Their homestead is in Nazareth. Now, I did some research on the construction of inns in Bethlehem. By the way, they were called caravansaries. Caravansaries. 
you know, because caravans, this is what is tem very temporary lodging. And I discovered that such inns were built in a three or four-sided formation over the caves that are in the hillside of Bethlehem. And in a few minutes, Jared's going to show us some pictures of that. Well, let me read from an expedition by Dr. Nelson Price. He's a Southern Baptist gentleman that knows something about Bethlehem. The mountains around Bethlehem, he said, writes, were porous, providing many caves. Some of these caves were used to shelter livestock. Often a cave would have more than one chamber. The animals were kept in the outer chamber and provided warmth for the family deeper within. This is similar to what Eskimos allegedly do with their dogs when, and their igloos. They put the dogs on the outside in, the, in front of the doorway and the people are tucked back in where it is warmer. Such caves are called mangers. Follow me here. There is no innkeeper in the Bible narrative, but there must have been some proprietor who allowed Mary and Joseph to use the manger. It afforded more privacy than would have been in the inn itself. He goes on, I have visited that cave in Bethlehem more than 50 times. And it is a humbling thing to stand there and think here, right here, the word became flesh, came and dwelt among us. Other accounts that I read talk of the guest quarters of the inn located on the upper floor or walls, the walls that are uh, there, and the pack animals were sheltered in the caves below those walls. So it kind of confirms uh, what Dr. Nelson here says. Jared has some photos for us. Modern photos show little change, by the way, to this very rugged and forbidding terrain. Rocky hills, stone walls over cold caverns, with housing embedded into the surrounding hills. Is that showing there, Jerry? You see how the, that's the Bethlehem Hill? You see how the houses are built right into the rock. And then these openings at the bottom is like half moon things would be the uh, chambers for the animals in biblical days, of course. Modern days, they're still building this way. So the biblical account says while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her, notice, firstborn son. She had other children later, but firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. That would be the inner chamber of the cave. By the way, Luke 13, verse 15 calls, same word for manger, calls it a stall. Luke 13, verse 15. From the Greek word, photne, meaning to feed. So, they were fed in this inner chamber. They were housed in the outer chamber. I'm talking about the animals now. And it's in this inner chamber, the fateh, that Mary and Joseph <clears throat> set up the nativity room for her to birth Jesus. Why would they go there? Because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 2, verse 6 and 7. By the way, other accounts that I read, why would the inns be all full? We think, well, because all the people are traveling back. But no, not really. It's because of the census people being in the town. They would be Gentiles. They would not be welcome in the homes of the Jews. And so they gobbled up all of the resources that were available, in this case, rooms, getting ready for the census. Why Bethlehem? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, it is the city of King David, and Jesus is the promised son of David, who was, who is, to rule over his kingdom forever. That was told to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Secondly, to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah means fruitful, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. 
and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Micah 5, verses 2 through 4. So, there's reasons why Bethlehem is the place where God is directing Mary and Joseph to go. Oh, and perhaps a third reason. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Notice that. For your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Now I want you to think about this. We understand that it could not be, really, think about this, it could not be the other way around. That is, Christ being born in, let's say, Jerusalem, in a palace, among the imperial elite, among the wealthy, although he is entitled to all that kingship would say. But if he were born that way, the benefits of his salvation would never be available to the poor and the underprivileged because those with wealth and position guard their privileges like fine gold, and in so doing they exploit the poor. This is why James was so amazed at his people doting over the wealthy who came into their assemblies. He says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? James 2, verses 5 through 7. And James is telling them something, you know. He's saying, you know, the gospel came to you in your poverty, and that's intentional on God's part. What if it was the other way around? Savior coming to the poor and the underprivileged. Well, look at the shepherds of our text. The angelic message is given, verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Us, shepherds, us nobodies out here on the fields. Yeah, a, sh- a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And in verse 14, the angelic host praises God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's said to shepherds shepherds what do they do well they rush off to find joseph and mary and the child jesus now notice verse 17 when they had seen him they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child see no hogging of the treasure for themselves no keeping it incognito no there is Widespread dissemination of the good news. There is little to no sharing of the gospel from the top down. But among the poor in spirit, among whom theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verse 3, they are happy, they are eager to share the good news with all who will listen. Simply put, the rich, the powerful, the affluent, see themselves as self-made individuals whose holdings, whose positions are of their own doing, and so they don't need grace in their mind. They see no need to share what they have worked so hard for to obtain. Whereas the poor and the humble appreciate what God's grace has done for them, and they want His mercy to be experienced by all. 
I think Jesus came to the poor knowing full well that what their response would be. How marvelous when we think about this. Not many rich enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that. There's some, yes, but not many because of what we've been saying. Now, what do we learn from the nativity? Let me suggest some things here. Firstly, God uses pagan men, I heard it right, God uses pagan men to bring about his will. Where is Joseph and Mary's homestead? It's in Nazareth. How would they be compelled to go to Bethlehem? It is not likely that they knew anything about Micah's prophecy that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. And at this point in the history, Mary and Joseph are still trying to wrap their heads around the angelic announcement concerning Mary's child that she is bearing the Son of the Most High, chapter 1, verse 32, that he is the heir apparent to King David's throne, verse 32, and to Joseph that Mary's child will be the one who saves his people from their sin. Matthew 1, verse 21. That's a lot to digest. The, re- the shepherds received this news, yes, that a Savior had been born to them, yes, verse 11. But also, and this is new, this is new, it wasn't even revealed to Mary and Joseph. Verse 11, he is the Christ. The Lord. Look at the other text. You'll not find that in there. He is Christ. The Lord. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. As you can see where we get it. And it means the anointed one. It is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew. Mishaach. Messiah which means exactly the same thing, the anointed one. In Old Testament history, three officers were confirmed by the anointing of oil. Prophets, priests, kings. In Jesus' case, all three apply. He is the great prophet promised by God in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Moses was told by God, I will put my words in his mouth, this prophet that's coming. And if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. He's the great prophet that Jesus, that God promised would come. He was a priest. We read in Hebrews chapter 6, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That's what priests do. Where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, verse 19 and 20. What about kings? When we think of Israel's kings, we think of King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Of Solomon we read, There shall Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet Anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! 1 Kings 1, verse 34. Kings were anointed. Listen now to Jesus' self-disclosure in Luke 11, verse 31. As he's preaching to the people of his day, he says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, one greater than Solomon is here. Is here. He's referring to himself. There's King Solomon, and then there's me. All these anointings, prophet, priest, king, are contained in the concept of Messiah, though I am sure the shepherds didn't grasp all of this. 
but neither did Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 17 and following. As the shepherds retell what had been told them about the Christ child, the people were amazed. But, listen, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. We don't use this word pondered very often, do we? It's a Greek word made up of two words, sun, meaning with, and balo, meaning to throw with force. You say, well, what does that mean? It means to throw together with some kind of force, some compelling that's going on. What does that mean then, that Mary is pondering these things? She's wrestling, folks in her mind, with all that's been told her about this child. But as George would say, she's starting to put the dots together. Starting to put them together. She's not dismissive of all that she's been told, but rather contemplative. We would say the wheels are turning. She's thinking this thing through. But she has not arrived at a concrete conclusion as yet well a new block was added to the foundation in the shepherd's revelation guess what your child is the promised messiah what a shocker that must have been i've said all that to say this mary and joseph would never have gone to bethlehem based on what they knew about Jesus' full identity. Because they were still learning about his full identity. Something else would have to push them, move them. And God chose Augustus' decree to push them. By the way, historically, we can point to God using Assyria to discipline Israel for their idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar, to take Israel captive for their sin, Cyrus, the Persian king, to grant a pardon so that they could return to their homeland. So Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, now Roman, it makes no difference. Why? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water, and he turns it wherever he wishes. That's our God. Proverbs 21, verse 1. He moves among the nations, among the rulers, and God determines what we call providence, how the circumstances of life are going to overcome and take over. Secondly, God uses obedience in his people to bring about his will and blessing. Augustus' decree went forth throughout the empire to register for the census. Verse 4 says, So Joseph also went up, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Well, Edic and all, I have to ask, who would know? Who would know if Mary and Joseph just stayed in Nazareth and refused to obey the edict? Maybe they would have been found out. I don't know. What I do know is that they willingly complied. You know that God's people make the best citizens of whatever country they belong to. Why? Because God has charged us, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Romans 13, verse 1. And Paul was under wicked Nero's rule over Rome at that time. If you know anything about Nero's rule, he delighted in killing Christians. And he later did execute the Apostle Paul in about 68 A.D. So Paul's writing something here. Even if you've got a wicked guy on the throne, we are to obey. Now, having said that, this is not, this is not, listen to me, it is not a blanket endorsement. There are occasions for civil disobedience, for not obeying the governing authorities. For example, 
when the apostles were commanded by the religious authorities, stop preaching the good news about Jesus Christ in our city of Jerusalem. You're upsetting everybody. Well, they were upsetting the religious leaders. The apostles answered, but Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 4, verse 19 and 20. Translation, if you expect us to obey you rather than God and what he has told us to do, there's no contest. We're going to obey God, not you. Say, well, won't there be consequences for that? Well, yeah, (laughs) there was consequences for them. They were hauled back into the Sanhedrin and flogged, the scripture says. You say, what's your point? The point is this. If the governing authority is not asking us to do something immoral, cruel, illegal, or a violation of conscience, we will obey. You know the anarchy that we are seeing in America with the shootings by police officers of American citizens in these last days is because those citizens have chosen to defy the authority over them. When simple compliance would have spared their lives. But these are the seeds of anarchy. People defying authority. Even authority set over them by God for their good. And there's consequences for that. The degree of Augustus proved a hardship for Mary and Joseph. Yes, it cost them time and money physical and I think mental distress but it was doable it was doable so guess what they did it and in so doing God positioned them in the very town wherein the holy prophets had foretold that Messiah would be born and that was added confirmation to Mary and Joseph of Jesus true identity God blesses our We are to be obedient people. And then consider this as a final lesson. The the wealthy and the affluent are often poor spiritually because financial success fosters pride and self-sufficiency. Put it in Jesus' words. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel, listen to his words, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. (laughs) But with God all things are possible. And Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What will then be? What will there then be for us? And Jesus said to them, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last, they will be first. Matthew 19, verses 24. Now, I read a text like that, and I need to say that Jesus is not picking on the affluent of society. He's not picking on them. He is just explaining the peculiar problem wealthy people have in trusting God. And this is true. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich (coughs) in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. And in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. 
Solomon defined the problem this way. Whoever loves money never has enough money. I'm reading scripture. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats a little or he eats much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 17. Don't trust in wealth. Have you ever said, boy, I had a million dollars, I would. And then we begin our list. I'd pay off all my kids' mortgages. I'd pay off my mortgage. I would pay off the church's mortgage. I would support more missionaries. I would. And then we start down our list. No, no. Wealth does something to people spiritually. You have to be a special person with a special dispensation of God's grace to be a wealthy person and to keep it in perspective with regard to your own abilities. Paul gives us this perspective. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Philippians 3, verse 7. What's your value system this morning? We're coming into the New Year's celebration. Stock market is just booming. Woo, boom, boom. What, was it over 18,000 the other day? Something like that. The, pe- the rich are going, Whoo. love this stock market. My portfolio's really looking good. <laughs> and Solomon says, hey, just go and take it with you. And Paul comes along and he says to a Christian wealthy person, hey, be rich in good deeds because you're not going to take it with you. You're not. What about ourselves? What are we living for? What is our value system? You see in the scripture, Mary, Joseph, shepherds, what are these people? Poor people. Poor with regard to these material goals that the world supplies, but rich towards God. Like Paul, they might have lost all things, but they've gained Christ. Have you gained Christ this morning? Say, well, I'm not a Christian. Well, why aren't you? Because you're holding on to certain other things? You think this life is it? The writer of Hebrews says, hey, hey, listen up. It is appointed men to die once, and after that, the judgment. Are you ready for the judgment? Jesus is our advocate, our lawyer. And according to John 5, he's also going to be the judge. Ooh, I like that. The lawyer pleading the case for us before himself. 
we don't have Christ. Jesus said, what if it profits you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and pray that you will stir us today to think about how your son came and the way he came and with whom And who was, who was it that was re, the, the birth was revealed to you in the town of Bethlehem? To you a Savior has been born. Well, who were they? They're just shepherds. Nobody's by any roster of the famous and popular. No. But that's your will. You, you come to the poor. You come to the unassuming, you come to the humble. And so, Lord, if we're here today and we're proud and we're arrogant and we think I don't need to be saved and I'm okay the way I am and on and on, if we sound like rich people when we're not, as though we have the world by the tail when we don't, please forgive us and grant to us that repentance and faith that's unto life. Help us to look into the mirror of God's word and to see ourselves for who we are and what are we. We're sinners and we're lost sinners. And we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need your salvation. That's why you came. And we thank you for the way you came. That you're not one who came as royalty, though you were royalty, but you humbled yourself. And though you were rich, you became poor. Help us to see that. May that give us a better perspective of your grace to us. And if we're defiant of your authority now, we will repent of that. For you are a king, even if right now your glory is hidden. But when you come again, as you have promised in Scripture to do, it'll no longer be manger and feed trough It'll no longer be just shepherds and carpenters. You will come with the sound of the great trumpets, the Almighty, the Archangel, to proclaim the coming of the King of glory. I pray, Lord, that we will be ready. May we not be foolish. May we not be putting all of our energy in obtaining the value system of the world lose our souls. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving.